From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week, even during the time of pandemic. We've been coming to you via Zoom. Allows the whole crew to be here more often than not. This is Cade Massey, joined as usual by the whole team, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, faculty all at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. We are going to be talking sports analytics for the next two hours. We are going to lead, as we usually do these days, with the discussion of COVID. It is the context of our lives and the context for sport. It's hard to talk about sports without understanding what's going on in COVID. And it's led us to basically try to make sense more of the studies that we see and the changes that we've seen over the last nine months. The changes keep on happening, guys. I'm curious as you pay attention to the world, the part of it that's not like crazy politically or otherwise, but the part of it that we're trying to figure out, the COVID part, what has caught what has caught your eye? It's all crazy political, even the COVID part, unfortunately. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things on my eye. One is, of course, uh, vaccines and variants, variants of the virus and the vaccine distribution. We're all in different spots, so we're not necessarily in, in, in downtown Philly anymore. Um, and we get to experience the diversity of the different states' approach to vaccination. Sure. I'm curious to hear from you. I, I have experience in both New Jersey and, and in Pennsylvania, very different approaches. Pennsylvania seems to be much further behind New Jersey is in terms of scheduling outside the front lines. Pennsylvania seems to have made almost no progress down the, down the list, if you will. New Jersey is scheduling way, way down. Um, I mean, anyone over 65 and anyone below 65 with a comorbidity defined really broadly, I will point out. Um, and, um, and other states have got nothing. I mean, Massachusetts doesn't even look like it's getting to its seniors until February. So how are things in Texas? I, Texas is supposed to be leading the show here, no? I don't know about leading the show. Um, I think it's haphazard. It's back and forth. I mean, they started out distributing the vaccine to um, over, over well over 200, I believe, locations around the state. And they said, now, now we're going to do these mega centers. We're going to have 28 mega centers. Now, oh, no, now we're going to do 78 mega hubs. And so, you know, it's really been scattershot. But what, so you're talking, I, I think this, 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 um, the variance in response is one of the biggest stories for sure. And it's interesting to me to hear you name Jersey is New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts as being two of the slowest because it seems like they've been two of the better managed in terms of keeping the epidemic down. And also New York, New York has been, I think maybe a disaster from how slow they've been getting off the dime here. Terrible. And so it's interesting that the most, the, the, the states that who have been most careful in managing the first six or seven months of this thing, maybe that carefulness is getting in the way of the way well, certainly the leadership in New York seems overly focused on finding people very large amounts for, you know, right. getting ahead of <laughs> yes. time as opposed yeah. to just focusing on getting it out to as many people as possible, yeah. which has been a huge source of controversy. Yeah, I think one of the big challenges I just read, if you want to say what caught my eye, I have a lot, but let's just continue on the same thread. Um, according to New York City on Thursday, they're going to run out of vaccine. And so um, they've given away, they were, you know, this is a big story that came out about they thought there was more of a reserve or any reserve in the government. Um, There apparently is none. Um, New York City, the mayor announced today that if they don't get more vaccine like they were promised, they will run out on Thursday, which means forget first doses, no second doses uh, to people until they get more supply. 
And um, I think there's a big issue on, you know, as states broaden, obviously, they're building an expectation about how much supply they'll get, because there is a time frame by which you're at least, here's what we know. We don't know what will happen if it's six weeks in between the doses that you received. We know what was done under the trial. It was three or four weeks, depending on Moderna or Pfizer. Um, it might end up being for some people, they have to wait five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks. And then the question is, what happens to the efficacy? And mm-hmm. that you can say, well, it won't be affected too much. Well, you can say anything you want, but until <laughs> you actually have data that suggests how much the efficacy is affected, you just don't know. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about this supply issue? Because I hear bits about it here and there, but I don't know if I've seen anything systematic on it. And it's a little surprising to hear that we're out anywhere given, I mean, I think we've only given like 11 or 12 million of these. We've administered 11 or 12 million. And didn't the government contract for a couple of 100 million dose tranches? And so I I don't understand how we can be talking about 100 100 million dose tranches on the one hand, administering 11 and people are running out in New York City, no less. Well, I don't understand. Is, is it the case that that 100 million was actually delivered or was that just, no. what, you know, the U.S. Department, U.S. bought and now the, the, the actual manufacturers yeah. are struggling, I think, to basically fill their fill their orders from not just America, but like all the other countries that bought, right? Yes, yeah, okay. it's Shane's point. Right. Um, actually, what was very interesting is I, I heard both Fauci and um, uh, I can Hotek, the guy from the Baylor School of Medicine that you see on TV on, all the time. Um, he commented that it's very interesting. mRNA, which is the b- backbone, if you'd like, between both the Moderna and Pfizer, um, that was never, and they were very clear about this, never meant to be the solution. It was meant to be the interim solution until something that's much more scalable, something that could be given in one dose was actually found. And so the problem is you can't scale this much more than it is now. Like you say, well, why don't you just produce, why don't you just give Pfizer and Moderna a $10 trillion and get them to produce a billion doses by the end of next week? Well, they can't. And so I, this is the first time I heard that the solutions we have now, we even talked about this on Moneyball, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago, get as many solutions as you can. But in right. this case, there actually is a scaling problem with the mRNA-based vaccine. They can't just produce more of it. They don't have the ingredients to do so. They don't have the infrastructure to actually produce more of it in the scale that would be needed. Do we and have I think there's been, I, I've heard many, of bottlenecks and things like glass and stuff like that too. Some of the basic, like not even the non, some, some of the basic kind of non-biological components of these vaccines mm-hmm. as well, which, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we, we should, that at least we should be able to kind of, you know, war time, you know, war measures act or whatever scale up. But right. I guess also, also that takes time. I think there's going to be, I think there's lots and lots of challenges. I think um, pretty interesting to see. I mean, you know, a lot of us are waiting for the, I think it's Johnson and Johnson that has one that's coming, hopefully, that's only one dose, which by the way, I have to imagine both adherence would increase if it was only a single dose. Mm -hmm. Um, I would have to believe people's likelihood of even getting it would go up with there just being one dose of it that you have to take. Right. Um, So, but I, I think there's all kinds of challenges. Um, there's so, a, yeah, there's a bunch of them, including the response that your body takes to the second, the second Pfizer. I don't know about Moderna, but I would imagine it's similar. You're, many people have a pretty strong 
uh, immune response to it, which is good. And the, the counterpart to that, of course, is that uh, you might lose a couple of days of work if you get the, what I used to call the mini flu. But it seems that early returns, and now we've been out there, it's been out there a month or so, you're getting early returns, that the second dose is actually quite important. Yeah, um, your immunity fact, does not really rocket until you've had that second dose. Right. That, I, I've not only heard that too, but there's actually was an interesting New York Times article that even said that, you know, that 95% number, which people have been positing as the effectiveness of Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine, is actually underselling it. Yeah. Because 95% get basically no symptoms. 5% essentially, you're saying, well, there has to be some other group. I, I'll say essentially 5% get a mild case of COVID, literally in the trials out of 32,000 people who received the two doses of Moderna and Pfizer, one, I don't mean 1%, just one, I mean one, one person <laughs> out of 32,000 got what anybody would declare as a severe case of COVID. And not, and not death, just a, not se death. Just a severe one. case. Just to, just to follow up with that, that same article actually talked about the, the I think is almost the $100 million question here which is, do you spread it if you get the vaccine? And there's been way too much focus on the possibility of spreading it when the article essentially said what most virologists seem to know is that, no, you, you, you won't you be not. spreading it. Yeah, and that's, that's great news if that turns out to be correct. Well, the article I loved was also just saying, look, we need to just sell this thing harder, that people, yeah. are, people are being careful here, careful there. And, and, and the main story is this thing works. It's a life-saving it, the dose and people ought to be pushing that harder and less about, well, it doesn't do this and qualify it in this other way. Well, there's also the, um, there's also the, you know, the big thing about that happened in Sweden, you know, all these people are, are dying from the vaccine and stuff. So I looked at the data from Sweden. Um, so um, Adi's been keeping us up to date that much on, you know, let's call it the death rate of people that um, get COVID. What we're seeing in the United States right now, 400,000 people roughly have died, let's say, right? And, um, you know, the U.S. population is, you know, less than 400 million. So, you know, um, you know, you could say one-tenth of one percent. Well, basically, the number of people in Sweden who, in theory, have died from the vaccine is a number that's like five out of a million. Wow. So okay. when you compare, even if those numbers hold everywhere, so in one case, you have one out of a thousand of dying from COVID. In the other, essentially, you have one over a million. Can you guys remind me, isn't a million a thousand thousands? So um, <laughs> last time I checked, even if the vaccine does kill five to 10 people out of a million, isn't Adi, isn't that, uh, you're the math guy too, isn't that yeah. a lot less than one out of a million? I'm not, I'm not scared off the vaccine because of this little result. I can tell you that. Well, <laughs> no, no, but this is, gets back but, to Kate's point about selling it properly. Yeah. People are like, oh, there are these deaths in Sweden. Why don't people compare one in a million to comparing it to one in a thousand? But, yeah. And the benefits are much broader than that as well, though. So you, you have to think about the effect you have on other people, too, if you get vaccinated. And so it's it's exponential. You, you don't spread it. Other people don't right. get it. So. And, and, and I mean, again, maybe this wouldn't sell those particular people would be scared off anyway. But like what, I mean, this must, it must be that like kind of regular, like things like flu vaccines and stuff like that. There must be deaths that result from those as well. Or is this something that's kind of unique where people are kind of directly, you know, in these very, very rare cases directly dying from uh No, from that vaccine. happens. 
that, yeah. That so, I mean, like, it would be kind of worth baselining it relative to that, right? I mean, like, it could, you know, vaccines, like any medical procedure or, or, or thing, have some very minuscule risk associated with them. But is this risk of this particular vaccine any greater than what we've had dealt with with other past vaccines? That I mean, I think that would be kind of worthy information for the public to have. Yeah, I think also, you know, since we're the data channel here at Wharton Moneyball, um, maybe you guys had read this before, but the last week is the first time I've read an article that's given an actual number about if you've had COVID in the past, what percent effectiveness do you get in protection? So I read an article that said 83%. In other so words, elaborate, elaborate that, Eric. I saw that number, but I didn't know how well-founded it was. Yeah, how did they do that study? So they literally, I, I, I believe, I, again, I have to look for the article again. I remember reading it. I remember seeing the 83% number. I assume what they did is they tracked a random sample of people with COVID. And actually that it had so, COVID. That had COVID. Mm-hmm. And how many of them got reinfected with COVID. Now, it gets to Adi's point. Maybe you, you can get reinfected the second time, but it's no more than a minor nuisance to you because you've already had it. You've built up some antibodies. So your likelihood of going into the hospital is much lower. Your likelihood of death is much lower. We need to see those other outcomes as well. But if that number, let me just say the following. If that number is true, it says two things to me, but you can correct me. One is 83% we would have taken from the vaccines in a million years. So 83% ain't bad. It also suggests to me that those people should be a much lower priority than people without, because they already have some form of protection and probably enough. If you gave, you know, if 60, 70% of the U S population had it, those people probably might never need to actually get vaccinated. So I actually have answers to some of those questions. Um, the, if you've had it in the last three months, um, they do not, uh, they advise not getting vaccinated. So they're not, they're actually requesting doctors, nurses, frontline workers who've been infected recently to, to not, they Just say, to be do clear, not Adi, so. is it one, you want, you could make two arguments. I want to make sure which one you're making. One is it's a waste because you're not going to get it, but another could actually be your body will have this hyper effect you'll actually produce possibly i forget what they call it it's not a cytokine storm but it's your, your body it's an over uh, overstimulated immune response correct um, is that the reason I, that, I wish i could say that i knew the answer to that but i don't so okay. bottom line is is that it there is some indication that that you could have an overstimulated immune system response but mostly it's simply back of the line people you don't need it but i will follow up to the 83 percent number i think even that number is way too low only in this insofar as there have been so many millions of people infected in this country alone, it's, it's what, over 20 million, 30 million people. Yeah. If 17 people were getting it twice, you'd have a, a, a millions of people. If 17 not saying I've had it twice. Yeah, yeah I, and, I agree. I mean, the, the people write, we're still writing no, stories in no. newspapers whenever someone supposedly gets it a second. Yeah. Careful, Adi. Adi, careful. Oh, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm off by a, but there should be 10,000. No, 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 no. But no, no. But I, that's why I'm, I'm saying being careful for a different reason. Yeah. There's a censoring problem here, a time censoring yeah. problem. A large fraction of those people, I didn't say 83% forever. It's 83% over like a six-month time frame. Yeah, okay. There are a bunch of those people that have gotten it in the last six months. They still have protection. As a matter of fact, the bulk of people have actually gotten it in the last five or six months. So you have to be a little bit careful about yeah, saying, yeah. well, I would observe 17% reinfection. No, but, you but, but Kate's point is, is, I think, really apropos, which is that we're still hearing newspaper articles about someone getting it twice. If it's, once it becomes common enough, 
Uh, it's just yeah, I mean, I, I just to kind of follow up on kind of a little bit of my own questioning about the kind of study design, or at least the kind of sampling frame for this, that this 83% is, is kind of based upon. I mean, they do they know the, the people got into that they know they had COVID before because it actually, you know, because you can, I mean, there are, again, false positives and stuff like that. There's errors in tests. So is it just somebody had tested positive before, and then months later, you know, right. tested positive right. again. Maybe I mean, that, I don't yep. think that, you know, that, you know, we shouldn't treat those as actual COVID cases. And, or correspondingly, if they sort of selected the sample based on, no, you don't just need a positive test. You actually had to somehow be symptomatic for COVID so that we followed up. I mean, then you no longer have a representative sample of the population. Now you're talking about what happens to people who are actually symptomatic, which might be an even more relevant population, but you can not generalize that yeah. to the rest of the U.S. to the rest of the population. I, I agree with that, and I love Adi's. I mean, Adi's kind of he's kind of he's kind of taking a Bayesian line here. It's like even look, we haven't read the study, all right? So we're just getting it secondhand from Eric, and he and he's not remembering it fully. Well, but I'm Adi's actually saying, reading hey. it. I'm actually reading it right now. It was <laughs> hey, from, it, hey, pay attention! <laughs> pay attention! It's published. Well, I am paying attention. That's why I know to read it. Um, it's it's it was published in a medical journal, uh, uh, English medical journal called the Siren, and so um, that's where the eighty three percent number comes from. And so again, I don't know the reputation of the journal. I don't know the peer reviewed nature of the journal. It was based on something like fifty thousand fifty thousand people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every time you say, I don't know the reputation, I don't know this, I just go more and more towards Adi's priors. I keep on moving that 83% up a little bit more and more. Guys, I want to read you a question from a listener. So you guys can reach out to us. We, we usually tell you once or twice during the show, you can reach us at moneyball at wharton.upin.edu, moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. Our email is a little bit of a mailbag. Saul Waller, Saul Waller wrote, Saul asked, I'm going to read you this question. He said, are we overstating the vaccine's effectiveness? He said, pretty sure they're almost universally conducted in communities where there's some levels of social distancing, mask enforcement, et cetera. So it follows that the 95% effectiveness is true vaccine effectiveness and the effectiveness of social distancing. This is especially important, he goes on to say, when comparing the effectiveness of the vaccine versus the effectiveness of, say, the flu vaccine which is, you know, historically not taking place in a world of social distancing and mask and everything. So he's like, if you're going to compare it, it's not quite apples, apples. Shouldn't we be shrinking some down this 95% when comparing to flu? I think it's an interesting question. So Saul, thank you for the question, guys. Well, I mean, one thing you could look at is, you know, I mean, we do know that like social distancing adherence, all these kind of practices do vary a lot by age cohort, right? Yes. And so does the vaccine's effectiveness vary a lot by age cohort? If it doesn't, then that maybe is a partial answer to this question, right? That's good. That's good. I don't know if we have the answer. That's a good, that's a good question. So, so, I mean, I don't want to get long-winded on a survival analysis, but that's essentially, when they talk about 95%, what they're doing is comparing hazard rates. Um, so both, both sides, uh, neither side knew what they were getting. So, because if they knew what they were getting, that could introduce enormous bias. So if you knew you were getting the vaccine and you believed that it works, you yeah. might just start, you might just lift all your, yeah. your social distancing that you were doing and then go out and then end up getting much more likelihood to get exposed and then get sick. Um, and so there are all kinds of behavioral problems that, that are hopefully yeah. administered by the placebo control. But basically what they're doing is just they're comparing the, the rate of infection among the two groups, conditional on already lockdown. So I guess the issue is that it's already taken into the into account in the analysis. So the 95 percent um, effectiveness is compared to a baseline of lockdown. It's 95 percent mm. better than whatever you're doing now. 
Um, the argument, of course, is it's still mm -hmm. going to be effective after you take away the lockdowns. And I think it's a credible belief that that's going to be but, the case. But I think to Adi's, to Adi's point, I think that's a great point. I think to your point, though, is suppose the following happens, and this could make it appear less than 95% because people aren't paying attention. Let's imagine someone gets the vaccine once, and now they go out the next day and they say, well, I ain't getting it. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. And so actually what you might see is you might see its marginal effectiveness. Let's just take everybody who gets a needle into their arm once or twice. And you look at all of those people that got vaccinations or even people that get it twice. And you might say it's not 95 percent effective. Yeah, because people change their behavior after getting the first vaccination or the second vaccination and not waiting the 10 days they're suggesting yeah. afterwards. Right. And then I'm, what I'm observing is a mixture distribution because some people who went from lockdown right, right. vigilant to non-lockdown and I'm getting a mixture. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And it's also an occasion for us to, to remind people that the data are really clear on this point that you get great immunity once you hit that 10-day mark. But for those 10 days, your susceptibility is no different than before you took the shot. And so you've really got to have this period of vigilance and you're making the point, Eric, that some people aren't going to observe that vigilance. Mm -hmm. so, so possibly you said, the original trials, they did presumably observe that vigilance, right? Because they had no idea if it even was. And yeah, when, when you're in the yeah. clinical yeah. trial, you have no idea if it even works or not. So presumably right. you're that's, Yeah, that's the point, you know. Shane, is that you might see two things change. One is you got the vaccine. And second, you now change your degree of vigilance. Behavior, which you didn't yeah. do in the trial. Which you, you didn't, didn't do in the it. trial. Right. Adi, you mentioned, you mentioned a technical detail here. I'm going to challenge you to explain it concisely and in layperson's terms. Survival analysis, hazard rates. What what was that again? What why so, do we do that? Yeah, so survival analysis is is the standard way that we uh, we try to figure out uh, how medicines work. And essentially, what you do is you give uh, you give a drug to sick people. That's in this case, it's a vaccine. So you're trying to prevent the the, the disease, and then you you track the percentage of the treated. Um, and how they how, how long they survive that creates what we call a survival curve um, where after one week almost everybody's survived and after two it starts to go down and then it, it it sort of tracks down lower if it's a fatal disease and then you compare the group that was treated to the group that was untreated and you and you compare those two survival curves and the ratio of those curves are what we call is a ratio of hazard rates and these are this is major this is one of the most uh, impressive bits of statistics, um, the, the Cox proportional hazards model, and it's sort of used by by all all doctors in uh, to do almost all the analyses of of, uh, of clinical trials. Yeah. So another way another way to describe it as uh, that what Adi described is, if you've gotten the disease, you become out of the population of people we're considering. A hazard rate is given you haven't already gotten the disease, what's the probability you're going to get it in some time frame? let's say a day, a week, whatever it is. And so the population is changing that you're considering because some people are getting the disease. So they're in the out group. There's people left in the in group. And now the question is, how does that hazard rate change over time? And so we've been talking about for eight months here on Morton Moneyball is that if people who are more likely to get the disease get it earlier, 
because they're more prone to getting it, you would expect to see a higher hazard rate early on in most epidemiological processes. And then the hazard rate drop over time because the people less likely to get the disease, those are the ones still in that population because the other people have gotten it. So they're out of the population that the hazard rate's considering. That's why, as Adi's described many times, you'd expect to see these hazard rate curves drop over time naturally due to this self-selection process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, that comes up periodically in our analyses, and I'm sure it'll come up again, but I uh, just wanted to belabor it for a second. Guys, we only have a few minutes here, and I want to hear a little bit from you on the mutations we're hearing so much about. And we've really been on about this, and Adi, in the words of one of our listeners, uh, kind of scared the shit out of us. A couple <laughs> yeah, of weeks Adi went ago. from 1%, I think 1% to 25% was his number, or some minimum number to I've got a 25% Assume, chance of getting Assuming it. no vaccination. So that's right. the, uh, that right. was yeah, the so, no intervention. So, so number one, the main message is, look, we, we pro- you probably have in your community a new strain that is much more contagious than the old strain. And so you probably need to buckle down a little bit and go – We've all gotten complacent or, you know, more generously, we've figured out how to navigate what we've been navigating, but now the world's changed. And so we got to go back to kind of not knowing what we need, more conservative. So I hope everyone's taking that seriously. I think that was a real good word for my, I'm curious how your position on this has evolved. We saw the CDC put out some forecasts that said we anticipate, you know, by spring that the more common variant observed is going to be the new variant. And we're kind of in a race right now between the rise of the new, more contagious mutations and the vaccine. And there's a real important race between these two things. And the CDC provided some interesting forecasts on that. I'm curious what you guys are thinking. So I have a couple of data points to add to this. Um, one is that that a study, recent study seems to indicate that the new variant is profoundly and outrageously more uh, infectious within the family. So as everybody knows, many people know people who had it and they can tell stories. So I got it, but my wife didn't or my child didn't. Mm-hmm. And this is just seems universal that within a household, people can get it and other people not. Isn't can get the it. number you gave us like eight months ago, or something like only it's like 25 percent of within households. I thought that was a number. you it's, gave it's, us. I was saying about 25 to 50 percent. Don't get it. And oh, the don't get it. Okay. So it's, it's, but even that's it's surprising. Somewhere. I mean, that's it surprising. was very surprising. They lived yeah. in a household. Yeah. Yeah. And the data on the new variant seems to be 100%. <laughs> okay. What does that suggest about the spreading process of the new variant? Uh, so it seems that it seems to be just more contagious or it just seems to take more. But um, I, you know, I just got off uh, a Zoom with one of my students whose mom had it over break. He was exposed to her, her. His father was exposed to His father was exposed to her. Neither of them got it. Th- that's just a standard story that most people have to tell about the old, the, the, the one that's been us with all this time. I think the new variant is really going to make a big dent in how you see your family and see your friends. So if you're talking about changing your behaviors, um, I don't think the outdoor stuff might be or the, or the community wise, I don't know the answer, but I'm more sanguine than that's going to be sort of constant. But when you're getting together with other people, that has still been a still a small enough lowish probability event to be considering doing. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Well, I mean, family fa- within family, it's it's both indoors and prolonged. Yeah, prolonged. I mean, sustained certainly. trend like sustained, exposure, yes, right? Yeah, so absolutely. something like you know, like outdoor non-prolonged. It doesn't necessarily speak no. as much to no. that. Well, we don't, but we we don't know. And I'm just yeah. one personal anecdote to make it concrete. I, I usually have lunch with some friends in town when I come in to do the show. So we were going to gather. It's raining here. So we've been eating outside, kind of messy. 
So one guy offers a conference room at his office, big conference room. And a few months ago, we ate in there, kind of eating in the various corners. And then we, you know, we got outside somewhere to visit. And he offered that today. And normally I would have said, sure. But because of Adi and this damn new mutation, I'm like, fellas, we got to find someplace outside to do this. And I don't know whether that was safe. And it could be that I'm not being conservative enough. But I am giving you one very small personal example of being a little more conservative than I would have been because of the new mutation. So Adi, just a question for you. Um, which, which do you expect to be most affected by this? For example, as the number of vaccines go up and to the most vulnerable populations, obviously we would expect this to lead to many more cases. How steeply do you expect the number of people in hospitals and the number of people to die um, to actually go up? It's a race against time because that population is getting vaccinated the fastest. That's what I'm saying. So I'm um, saying if you had to so, guess which process is going faster. Okay, in America, vaccination is, process, is going faster. We still don't have that much of this new variant here. And I, and I don't know. I mean, we just not seeing large numbers of it. One piece of data that I'm tracking very closely is Philly. And our numbers in Philly hospitals are way down. The numbers in Philly uh, of, of cases are down by a factor of two. If we had vi- a variant kind of moving through this area, it, I don't think it would be reversing. So I do think that that the vaccine is winning, at least with the seniors. For but, other people, uh, not so much because we're not on track to get vaccinated for a long time in most of this country if you're not a senior. But Adi, give us some intuition or the whole team, I don't mean Adi necessarily, give us some intuition when, when a process is starting from zero, even an exponential process, it's going to go for a while before you notice it, right? It's like, it's going to go from when you notice it to being out of control really quick, but from not existing to noticing might be a while, right? Can help. So we, we all have very bad intuitions for the exponential process. Can, can anyone do something here to give us some intuition why, why it might be there, Adi? It might already, probably is already in Philadelphia. Odds are, logically. Sure, sure. It's just that it's going to go from zero to noticing. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take longer to get there than you would expect, given how fast it's going to go from, oh, we noticed it and it's out of control. Well, I think I think, as, as you said, it's a exponential process, which means let's say I'm, I'm, I'm this is not an empirical. Let's say only one percent or two percent of the people have this other strain. Then we're still getting a ninety eight percent to two percent mixture. And so, yes, um, in some sense, the growth rate of this, like one of them has an R of, let's say, one and the other one has an R of one point five or something like that. Oh, of course, you're going to end up with a, you know, two months from now, assuming nothing changes, you won't have a ninety eight percent to two percent mixture. But it also ninety eight percent is forty. 49 49 times as big as 2%. And so the effect it has on the total population, while it is growing at a much faster rate, is a very small percent. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. where you, it's, you know, as we say in mixture distributions, the mixing, the mixing proportions work, matter, like the 98 to 2. And of course, the emission rate at those matter. But you're right, it's not going to get better. Just let me just throw out an exponential fact. 1.05 raised to the fourth power is about 20% increase Correct. in population. 1.5 to the fourth power is about 500% increase. It'll destroy you. So that that difference is absolutely epic between 1.5 and 1.05. Oh, it's it's uh, that's a absolutely <laughs> great point. Yep. And that's why I asked Adi which you know, this is a race and if the race of vaccines to vulnerable people does not speed up that 1.5 to the power T is going to overtake things very quickly. And that's why if you look at many forecasts, they're still predicting an increase in the daily death rate to possibly 
5,000, 6,000 plus a day starting in about a month. Because again, this other strain is going to accelerate quickly. As one last question before we roll out of here. We have a change in administrations happening in the next 24 hours. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. The shows will go up tomorrow and uh, we should have a new president by the end of the day. Setting politics aside, we know that Biden has ambitions for a much more aggressive federal response to what's going on, the pandemic and the vaccines. How optimistic are you that this is going to make a difference anytime soon? And how optimistic are you that it'll make a difference in the longer run? So there's, there's a huge logistical challenge. He, yeah. We're going from a fairly uncoordinated response to a pretty ambitious response. Governments are not known for how nimble they are. And so I guess I am caught between being optimistic about the ambition and the long-term consequences and being pessimistic about the immediate consequences. I kind of feel like- I mean, I I think that's kind of where I at. I mean, you know, we can kind of have an analogous to like a lag. There's like a lag here where, I mean, even if they hit the ground running and like, you know, we're able to somehow- make a more efficient, like kind of like throw money at the problem, whatever needs to be done effectively. I mean, the, the, ter- the, the kind of consequences of that are probably not going to be felt until the late spring, I would guess, just because it does take time to, to, to for these things to kind of work themselves uh, through the system. Yeah, that's, that's even, that's even more pessimistic than I am, Shane. I was thinking, well, there'll be a six week lag or something, you know, it's certainly not oh, going to be. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because the current, the current, the incoming government is going to just completely focus on COVID. There won't be any other distractions out there. <laughs> yeah. I was just, uh, I was just going to build on what Shane said. It really depends on what you think the cause of the, let's call it the slowdown is. If it's one of production, then I've already brought, I already mentioned that may not be possible. If it's right. one of, yeah. I don't, you know, setting a good example, that's one. If it's, can he, can the president uh, require mass on in public spaces or in uh, certainly government and other types? Yes. So it just depends on what you think the cause of the slowdown is. He can, he can ask for it. I'm not sure he could implement. We can it. mandate it in federal yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, city locations. Yeah. Like I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not predicting anything to be different. I think that the things that government convince can do quickly are things that, that won't have any impact anymore. I mean, a year ago, masks, a universal mask mandate or something oh, might yeah. have been substantial. Behaviors modeled pro- more properly might have been substantial. But now, I mean, that horse is way out of the barn and is galloping off on somewhere. The vaccine the front, on, the vac- on the vaccine front, can they step in in the middle of this thing and add a little coordination that will make a difference anytime soon? I don't think so, because I think the problem is supply chain. I mean, New York is claiming is trying to negotiate directly with Pfizer and Pfizer's throwing up its hands and saying, go, no, you got to talk to the federal government. So mm-hmm. maybe there is a little bit of action that can be done there, but I'm not expecting much. I think maybe the federal government could properly coordinate what works and what doesn't and maybe be more instructive to the states. OK. All right. Well, appreciate the conversation, fellas. That has been our quarter on covid Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We're coming up on seven years, guys. We're about uh, five weeks out, maybe six weeks, six weeks from our seven-year anniversary. We've been doing this every week for seven years now, even during the time of pandemic. Rolling into the second quarter now, going to talk about sports. Enough coronavirus conversation for the time being. We're going to hold off on NFL for the third quarter. And in this quarter, we're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to three of the four hosts' hearts. 
That's so generous of you, Kate. (laughs) I'll figure out a way to talk about Tom Brady going to the Baseball Hall of Fame, too. But go ahead. Right, right, right. Well, I know Adi, being being an AFC East guy, has heard as much about Brady as he wants to hear for a while. (laughs) But we got between now and our next show, we're going to get Baseball Hall of Fame votes come in. And this is something that fun to talk about every year. Adi does some modeling and some forecasting on this. So what's the latest on this, Ad? Yeah, so I've been, it, ever since uh, they had public ballots being made available and, and collected and tracked up until the announcement, it's been really fun to look at the early returns and try to guess what's going to happen. And um, this year, and actually, I, I think I've had some really good success. I predicted yes. Messina. You're not Thank guessing. you very much. Guess. You don't uh, guess. And, and, but this year, this year is actually quite fascinating because I'm going to make a forecast uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys. How many um, how many uh, new entries to the Hall of Fame do you expect to see this year? Well, last week you told us you well, – see, I do listen, Cade. Last yeah. week you told us you thought the answer would be none because yeah. the highest person was tracking, I think, at 73%, and the later ballots – uh, tend to come in more negative than the positive ballots. So given you're not going to, if you tell me more information, I'll adjust my. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm basically predicting zero at this point. Mm-hmm. The, the, the three leaders in the pre, the public ballots are Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens. And these three tend to do very badly on the private groups. And are they, they all above, have. where are they at right now? All of them are below 75%. So they're not even tracking in their supportive public Um to hit 75%. So I don't think three of them, Schilling, Bonds, or Clemens are going to make it. Next year's their 10th and final. That might be a completely different game changer. I think many people are still saying, no, they're going to have to suffer it. Wait till their last year before I'll, I'll, I'll switch over. But what's fascinating is the new candidates, nobody's, the only one who's new to the boards who looks like they will be polling over the 5% minimum that you need to stay on it is Mark Burley. Everybody else is going to drop off um, and it just doesn't look like there's anybody else making any headway. Um, there's a couple of candidacies that are interesting. Scott Rowland is doing pretty well. He's mid sixties. Um, Andrew Jones has gone from, you know, high single digits all the way up to mid forties. And his candidacy is gaining a lot of credibility, particularly among the sabermetric community. We stat heads seem to really value what Andrew Jones has done. He came up as a, like a 19 year old, um, and was a substantially, I mean, really an epic defender in a difficult position center field when he first came out, power hitter. And if you look at his career totals, they are really impressive. So, Adi, real quickly, this process you're describing, one, I, I didn't, I had forgotten or didn't know that there was this cutoff for the first year people. That if there you don't 5%, then you're like, out. You're done. Now, okay, so that's interesting. But then you also, the way you describe it, it sounds like there is this natural progression over time where people have to kind of warm to the idea yeah. or maybe they talk to each other. Is there, there must be, you know, there must be kind of models of models that say, if you poll 20% your first year, that bodes relatively well or relatively poorly for whether you'll ever hit 70. There is. Is there that kind of yeah. thing? Oh, yeah. You know, because I mean, somebody that's kind of on my radar is Scott Rowland. I kind of, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I he's in, I guess, maybe his fourth or fifth year of eligibility. And I think he's kind of in the 60 percent or something like that yeah. now. He's going to make that, it. To me, that sort of that suggests that he probably will make it if he's yeah, already. I think Todd Helton might make it as well. I mean, Todd Helton is a guy who's got superb batting statistics, um, but he played in Colorado. He's polling mid 50s. I think by the time he's all through, he'll make it too. Okay, so hold on. You said Buddy played Just to in clarify, Colorado. Not this year, though. You mean like. 
with yeah, no, not this year. This year, he's yeah, not yeah. going to make it. But real yeah. quickly, he said, "Great batting stats, buddy. Played in Colorado because stats are inflated because of elevation. Is that the deal? Oh, so you, yeah, you got to yeah. discount these guys. And and you think the how good has the community gotten? You discount some guys, but then you inflate other guys. Got right? The guys who played in." And yeah, and I mean, well, parts. a lot of what they kind of at least like kind of, you know, like at a low level can do is, is things like, you know, like looking at splits, like home away splits and stuff like that yeah, in order right. to sort of see right. how. And, and Todd Helton def, definitely, if I remember correctly, had some pretty substantial differences Epic. in his home way. Colorado is a ballpark that changed the dimensions. So it, it's gotten it's gotten even bigger, um, which is both pros and cons. Back in the day, you know, when Helton played his began in Colorado, that was a Band-Aid box. Balls were just flying. Um, it's, it's substantially less of a, of a hitting, hitter's paradise than it was. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I've heard the phrase Band-Aid box before. Let me try some old school. I'm, I'm going to miss the names, but y'all are going to know them. Who were the World War II-era second basemen for the Yankees and the Sox who famously played in very different parks, and the guy that played in the smaller park – was an instant, not maybe instant, but pretty quick to the Hall of Fame. And the guy who played in the bigger park, I guess the Yankee second baseman, was much slower to be appreciated and only got there very late after Bill James and the sabermetric community said, hey, look at the road splits. He actually outperformed his peer over at the Sox on the road, which is apples to apples. But half their at-bats are at home, which is very much not apples to apples. If you're- I'm, I'm fascinated by this story because I've never – I've never – conceived of a player that a yankee player that was slow to be appreciated <laughs> well has that I, actually ever yes. happened yes i can't believe i'm blanking on the names of these guys well, I, can't it, was, have I don't know yankees have never been famous for second basements period yeah um, second, well except for alfonso scoriano I, man yeah 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 sure and 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 he, he's played most of his career Eric, elsewhere take it to take us out of this mess. Yeah. So, no, no. I want to go back to the actual data. So I'm staring at the screen right now with the Baseball Hall of Fame tracker. And let me emphasize why Adi's correct. First of all, as of um, two hours ago, Kurt Schilling is sitting at 74.8%. Now, what's more relevant, however, is Bonds and Clemens are in the about 71% range. And you say, well, they're so close. Well, here's the issue. I love doing this math, and I've done this math my whole life. We know right now that 60% of the votes roughly are in, because it's what it tells us. So 40% are not in. So that's a three to two ratio. So if you're 4% below, meaning you're 71% now, let's just give people, build people the intuition. Let's say Bonds and Clemens for the remaining 40% get 79%. You say, well, 79 and 71 average to 75. No, because one's 40% and the other 60%. So you need a three to two ratio. So Bonds and Clemens would need 81% of the remaining 40% to get to 75%. Now, given 81% A is just a lot larger than 71%, and number two, the fraction of people who tend to vote negatively in the secret ballots tends to be larger, the chances of getting 81% of the remaining 40% is essentially close to zero. We're well beyond the place right now. Now, Schilling, on the other hand, he only needs like 75.3%. He's so close, except you get to the reason Adi said the secret ballots tend to be more negative than the Mm -hmm. other ballots. But basically, Mm -hmm. Clemens and Bonds have no chance. They're not getting 80-something percent of the remaining 40 Mm percent. There's no way. So I don't know when the last time we had nobody inducted. Um, That would be something to research, but but it hasn't been in in my memory. I think it's kind of nice. It kind of reminds people that there's a high bar here, man. We're not just going to do a ceremony just to have a ceremony. 
under under our kind of your your our little sub model that you know these three cases are there's like a punitive component to them and that people are going to that you know we might have sort of some uncharacteristic kind of jump in the 10th year that means it's going to be a pretty packed 10th year i mean if they all get in the hall of fame next oh, year that's I, I do a think crazy so. hall of fame so class i thought well, the good news is a- for those of you that are worried just remember and i'll be there because i'm a member of the baseball hall of fame mm-hmm. um <laughs> last year's class which included Derek jeter by the way will be inducted at cooperstown this 2011 ah so maybe nice. they so let's not nice. let's incentivize not to not have anybody new coming in because it looks fact, really bad for for any new possibilities scott Rowland is the only one who who has he's in his mid 60s he'd have to have you know almost 90 percent on the remainder to get over the 75 threshold there's got to be some first ballot ones kind of coming down the line though right? uh, i think so yeah oh Don, by the I way uh, adi i can answer your question or early um, in ones. 2013 is the last time that no one was voted in by the baseball writers association of uh, okay okay 2012 just to give you an example was barry larkin and 2014 wasn't a bad year frank thomas greg maddox and tom glavin not bad. That's a spectacular year. Three or four is a good solid. They got to start moving stuff around in there to clear out space for Big Poppy too, right? <laughs> well, Manny doesn't have any traction. I no, no. I mean, Manny, Manny, unfortunately, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I think if you're going to be kind of a known, like a known PED user, you better have, you know, off the chart numbers. And Manny had pretty great numbers, but not like, you know, record breaking numbers. Okay, so speaking of PED user, give me some speculation on whether Bonds and Clemens are going to get it in their 10th year, 10th and final year. You said next year. You don't year have to flip. Year. I mean, I, I kind of buy into the, like what these guys have been saying that I think there are going to be enough voters that are doing this kind of punitive thing where they, you know, are do want to see those guys in the hall or think those guys should be in the Hall of Fame, but want to kind of and, punish and them up me, until the last minute. You don't have to flip that many people. No, you do. See, that was what I was going to get to because Shane, remember I said they have 71% of the 60% that's public. Adi can tell us. Let's imagine they get 60% of the remaining 40%. Well, now all of a sudden they could be 8, 10, 12% away from getting. And that is a large number of voters that you have to. No, yeah, I guess. So actually, the real question is unless Adi tells me how much more negative in general the second population is, I'll come out with a prediction right now they will not make the hall of fame next well year. No, the real issue the real issue is, is a point that shane raised there they are very negative this is not a group that likes them but the only question is are they just all collectively waiting until year 10 correct when yeah. we have a time no that's like right this? i mean i think this you know are for these particular three cases two pd to one kind of just being unlikable for other reasons you know i i think they're you know we, we're, we're gonna see sort of like an, an unusual, I think, kind of trajectory, at least to their final year, compared to kind of other final years we've sort of observed in the past where they just kind of. I think you know, what's also interesting, Shane, at, at guys, is that um, it, the waiting process you said, Adi, has an interesting game theoretic nature to it. <laughs> and here's what I mean let's say it's next year and we're in year 10. And I'm indifferent. You know, I haven't voted for Bonds and Clemens for nine years because, you know, damn it, I'm not putting those guys in the Hall of Fame. And then you look at the early voting and you see they're close. And now you're saying, you know, my vote might really make a difference. You know what? Screw them again. I'm still not putting them in the Hall of Fame. I think 
the fact that the early ballots are released will hurt them in year 10 as compared to if it were a secret ballot entirely. I think the fact that you'll see them tracking up towards 75 percent in the pre-period, I still think this, you know, I've talked about this never voter ballot or spike at zero, as we call it in marketing. I still think there's going to be a large spike at zero group that's going to vote no for them and we'll do it late next time as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think one of the things that really cr- critically matters is for 2022 and their last year is who's up, who's coming up that can take spots of the voters. Maybe only get to vote for 10. And I'm looking a, ahead. Yeah. And I'm looking so ahead. Ortiz a bit. is coming. So, yep. so Ortiz uh, is coming next year. So's uh, Alex Rodriguez. That guy might get. Some uh-huh, right. You know, so you, you get some, you got Jimmy Rollins. I mean, I don't know where these people stand. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are, there are, there are kind of algorithms that, that forecast what what do we expect of them but there's a couple yeah, like the people. jaws ratings and stuff yeah like jaws that. ratings so certainly rts and and rodriguez and i i think rodriguez is going to have the same set of problems maybe not as terrible as bonds and and, and clemens but he's not going to get elected on the first ballot no i think that's right i think you're right about that um what what percentage of people who eventually get in get in on their first ballot oh, oh. it's like 10 5 10 percent very yeah. very small yeah, yeah. That's a, it's, I mean, when we, whenever we kind of talked about our, like our informal kind of within the hall of fame, like tiers are kind of, you know, the first balloters I think are like, yeah, like top 10% basically. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let me, let me give you the details on this example I gave you. And this example comes from Bill James, uh, probably his book, whatever happened to the hall of fame. I got the example from our friend and colleague, Rick Larrick, who's down at Duke, but it's Bobby Doerr and Joe Gordon. So Dorr played for the Red I Sox. I knew it was Bobby Dorr that you were referring had to, to be but Bobby I didn't Dorr, know yeah. it was Joe Gordon. So these guys were both second basemen in the 40s, and they were, you know, rival teams, obviously, and had similar careers, but Dorr played at Fenway and Gordon played at Old Yankee Stadium. And the consequence was they had very different home stats. And as a consequence, Dorr was just much more highly thought of after his career, and he was voted into the Hall of Fame in 1986. And Joe Gordon wasn't voted until 2009. So they're complete contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought of them as rivals and peers and, and similar when they played. It was 23 years later, and it was only because of sabermetrics that Gordon got in. Again, let me give you, I have kind of traditional box score stats here, just to show you the splits, the home away splits. On both playing, are righties, I think that's the issue, right? Uh, presumably, right? Presumably. with Second the short- base, they have to be, yeah. Okay, so at home, let me. What number would you like out of the traditional size? How about slugging percentage? The door slugging was five thirty-two. Gordon slugging was four forty-seven at home. At home, mm-hmm. all right. So he's trumping by almost hundred points at home. You go on the road; half their games are played in complete apples to apples around the league. Doors slugging three eighty-nine. Gordon's four eighty-two. Yeah. So it's it's just a. This is an example of context effects, and and sabermetrics is really good at this now. The rest of sports analytics has gotten better at it. Outside of sports, we're really bloody. Awful. I actually remember when Bobby Dorr went into the Hall of Fame, um, and as I remember it well, I remember because Ted Williams lobbied for years and years and years and years saying Bobby Dorr was the most important person on that team. So I remember that well. And I also remember also because for many years, uh, Bobby Dorr was the oldest living Hall of Famer. He lived 99 years old. um, And uh, matter of fact, I think he's the oldest living Hall of Famer who ever lived in the sense of he lived to be the oldest of any Hall of Famer. Interesting. Okay. I had to, while we were having this discussion, I had to look ahead a little bit to some of the players coming down the pipeline over the next three, four years and whether there really will be any kind of first ballers and answer your question. The only one I see potentially, Adrian Beltre, maybe. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he'd sure be thing. first ballot. He deserves it. And another person sabermetrically enhanced because of his contribution on the fielding side yeah. has been so valuable. But while we're Ichiro talking Suzuki about is another one I 1940s Boston Red Sox, you got Williams, you got Dewar. The other one is an interesting a trivia question I like to ask. Who owns the record for the longest hitting streak for the Boston Red Sox? I would assume Williams. I guess it's not going to be. The answer is DiMaggio. (laughs) The other DiMaggio. Don DiMaggio. (laughs) Yes, that's right. That's great. That's great. Well well done, Odd, and a good way to wrap up our our short second quarter that we focused exclusively. Let let the record show exclusively on baseball with the Hall of Fame discussion with the votes coming out between now and our show next week. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics on SiriusXM. You guys can reach out. We got the whole crew here, but we love to hear from y'all as well. You can get us mailbag fashion via email that's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu or reach out on twitter at wmoneyball is our handle there at wmoneyball you can send us questions suggestions protests whatever you got we'd love to hear from you and we try to throw things on the air when we can guys we dove into baseball in the second quarter and we have held off until we had a full quarter here to talk about the NFL. We are nearing the end of the season, exciting times, big weekend, another second in a row, big weekend of NFL football. Lots to catch your eye. I'm curious what caught your eye on the NFL. Well, look, I figured I waited 19 years for the Buccaneers to win another playoff game, and I've been waiting patiently. I could wait another hour to the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball to talk about it. Look, here's the thing about football that's interesting. If you watch that entire game, That game came down to a play that will not be celebrated as much as it is. But let me tell you the play that it was. The score was 20-13, to Saints. The Saints had the football. They were driving. A guy made a catch on the Saints. I forgot who it was. Jared Cook. It was He had the ball at the 50-yard line. He's running. He's already got a first down, and it's punched out from behind by Weatherhead or whatever the guy's name is. And the Bucs get the ball. At like he runs it back like uh, Devin White gets the ball, runs it back like 20 yards. The Bucks score, make it 20 all. If that play continues, the Bucks didn't seem to be able to stop the Saints at that point. If they get a score there, now you never put Tom Brady out of it, but let me just tell you, the Saints didn't score again from that point forward. And so that play changed the entire game because I was watching that drive saying, wow, it's going to be four or five minutes left in the third quarter and the Bucks are going to be down two scores here. And this is not going to go well. And um, so that's an unsung play in the game. And I think secondly, at the end of the day, when you lose the turnover battle four to zero, yeah. your odds, I mean, yeah. any, you know, Adi's Mr. Baseline, go take a look at the odds of winning an NFL game if your turnover is four and you get zero from the other team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not winning. You're just mm-hmm. not winning the game. So, Eric, does this mean that you're not on the camp that says that Breeze is washed and that was all just tragic? No, that- no, no, no. <laughs> Breeze is entirely washed. I think what you saw in that game is that the Buccaneers could play really tight coverage because they didn't think Breeze could t- throw the ball into tight windows. 
they didn't really have to cover anybody deep. The one deep ball was thrown by Jameis Winston on a trick play, which, by the way, made the score 20-13, yeah. was the 50-yard bomb by Winston. We know he can go deep. He's got a strong arm. No, just the opposite. I think this is what happened. Then, by the way, I was wrong about Tom Brady. I was wrong. Um, I assume Tom Brady's arm was not particularly strong last year. And what happened, it turned out he had no one that could beat anybody deep. But now that he's got guys that can beat people deep, he can throw the ball deep. So, no, I think Drew Brees is absolutely washed. Okay, so so reconcile for me how Brees could be that washed, and yet they kind of should have won that game if not for the turnover. Well, so, I mean, the way they could, should have won that game, given that Brees is, could, can't throw the deep ball, is uh, Alvin Kamara. I mean, you know, they could have done a lot more damage with relatively short plays and were essentially in that in that game so I I I agree with Eric I think you know that was kind of the turning point to me too and I think if that particular play hadn't happened I put it like more likely that New Orleans actually kind of goes on to win that game and if they had I think we'd be talking about Alvin Kamara and 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 some you know and all this he was already having an amazing game it's just you know once they got down as a consequence of that play and some of the subsequent ones, yeah, they weren't able right. to kind of utilize him as much. Yeah, but let's also be clear. All the passes that, that um, Brees completed in that game were seven to 10 yard passes. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he even, I think they even said he only tried one pass above 20 yards. And um, I don't think the Bucks were worried about it at all. Look, it's again, it was you, even during the game, Shane, you even brought up Peyton Manning. Look, if you don't have the arm strength and you can't throw to the outsides yeah. and you can't go deep, the other team can pin you to the middle. They can press coverage you. And then all of a sudden, even if you catch the ball four or five yards, you're going to get hit hard because the guys are the safeties. Everybody's right there. And that's what the Bucks did. Now, let me just say, there's a different player coming next week. Yeah. And he can go deep. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're not going to be able to do that against Aaron Rodgers. It's unclear okay, what they'll be able to do. Before we go to that, I want to hear just a little bit more about Breeze. So am I remembering correctly that they won't report out the velocity of passes because they don't want it to turn into kind of a show-off thing? There's there's some restriction on they. I don't think they report how hard passes are thrown, even though that that is a knowable thing given all the motion tracking that happens. Okay, in the absence of that, you know, when I go to baseball games now, I wonder whether teams have models for it's to talk about survival analysis, Adi. Survival analysis for your pitchers for when they're losing their stuff and they need to be pulled. And this is a very hard decision. And you know, there are models, but it, you know, it's hard to re- lean on an algorithm in those situations. But essentially, how about a model, a survival analysis model that's career level for these QBs? We've talked about what happens with QBs where they cruise along for a while and then they just kind of collapse. If that's true, we ought to be able to monitor something about their play get these career baselines and then we should know when either they're hurt or here they go off the edge. And the reason I'm going on about this is because Bassey Peabody had new Orleans all year and people who are watching breeze player going, you guys are idiots because breeze is washed and we don't have it in the algorithm and it's not quite showing up in the stats, but you get in a game like this against better competition and you get behind and it's later in the season. I mean, breeze has had trouble late season before and all of a sudden, all that age shows. The main thing I'm arguing for, there ought to be, and eventually there will be, these kinds of career models, objective, objectively quantified career models where you see 
the drop-off. And it's not just my eyes against your eyes. It's like, I can put it in my model if I want to, because I can see the drop-off. Adi, you were trying to jump Yeah, out. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I, I'm not sure that you're wrong. I just think football is really complicated. I mean, that, I mean no. but in the sense that when you get older, there are things that you just get better at in football that I don't think it happens in other sports as much. I don't think a pitcher, although there are some exceptions, once they start to lose velocity, you start to see it in the outcomes that, and you can predict what's going to be happening. I think the problem with someone like Drew Brees is, and they're not giving you that velocity information, is that he gets smarter. I mean, and if yeah. he gets smarter and better and faster, and he releases so quickly, and though he's, they learn to compensate for their failures, and then what ends up happening is that all of a sudden their failures become so bad that they can't compensate anymore, and they just blow up. I'm wondering whether it's predictable at all. That's essentially what I'm arguing. Okay, so let me just let me give you one anecdote in your side, which is Peyton Manning's last year. I mean, I feel like he was just kind of hurling the ball <laughs> forward, you know, shot putting the ball out there. Right. But he was so goddamn smart that he still won a Super Bowl. I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, his uh, defense won a Super Bowl, but he at least was able to manage the game such right. that he was not a detriment to his defense. That's right. Yeah, that's the right. thing yeah. I was going to also say is that I think there's it's. There's macro variation, which are saying, you know, Drew Brees is much worse this year than he was last year, and maybe even worse the second half of the year than the first yeah. half of the year. Right. But also, there's the type of micro variation where I'm sure one of these times we'll get somebody on from one of the teams, an actual player. I'm sure if you asked a, a Bucks, Buccaneers player, let's say Devin White, um, at the end of the first quarter, on the sideline, they're saying to themselves, Brees has got nothing on the ball. Yep. That's he right. can't get to the outside. That's he right. can't get the ball deep. Look, even the passes he's completing, they have no zip on him. Players can tell that. There's no doubt players can tell that on the field. There's no doubt about it. And so my guess is the reason why you saw the Buccaneers' defense also get more effective as the game went on is they're making adjustments. Their coaches sure. can see it. The players can see it, et cetera. So sure. it is, I agree with you. This is one of those processes where I think there's macro variation, but there's Eason, you know, Sometimes a 42-year-old wakes up on that given day and his arm is much worse than it would be if they had played just one day differently. That's, I, that all sounds exactly right to me. And, Adi, this is not to say that you're wrong because I think you're right, but it, I still think there's room for this particular input. So we don't know. Maybe it's compensated by wisdom, but it would be nice to know if we had it. would be nice to have that baseline for physical performance observed some objective way. And you can just throw it up there and kind of is, is the quarterback right today? And you just kind of have, a, it's rough. There's variance. I get it. But you have this baseline, you have objective measurement and you give you some insight into the process. Well, I just have a, a, just one response. Um, I've sat next to scouts at the baseball game who don't need to look at the, at the radar gun to tell you how fast exactly. the throws are. Yeah. Yeah. They're that attuned to small variations in speed to yeah. be able to know immediately what this is. The human eyes are, are really quite exceptional organs, and we can do an enormous amount with enough experience and practice. I can't believe that the actual people on the field can't tell you oh, to within a tiny yeah. amount how fast these guys are throwing. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think they, that's right. They don't need the velocity numbers. They just kind of know. They know. We don't know. That's the problem yeah, because they don't, saying, it's not in a database. Yeah. I'm not talking a tool for a team. I'm talking a tool for an analyst and over the course mm -hmm. of the season. Cause I agree hundred percent. That's what, that's exactly what happens during the game. Eric. Yeah. 
Okay, so how much, you know, how much are we going to use the reverse narrative this week? And let me just say, as a Bucks fan, I want to, but you're going to warn <laughs> me against it. So this week, I didn't say the Bucks had no chance against the Saints, but the Saints had beaten them twice. But now I want to make the reverse argument. Did you see the Bucks destroy Green Bay during this, this season? <laughs> Score was 38-10. to 10. We yeah. know how to beat Aaron Rodgers. Well, <laughs> apparently Drew Brees knew how to beat us during the regular season. Right. But here's my question. Let's say whether it's the Massey Peabody model, whether it's football FPI, whether it's the betting odds right now, it's basically both games are at plus three. Do you put any extra weight, any weight whatsoever that the Buccaneers beat the Packers 38 to 10 during the regular season? Would that make you change? Would, in other words, would it make you make a weighted average between let's call their macro strength and their micro matchup? And if the answer is yes, how much effect would it have? Okay. Let me, let, let me, at first, I thought you were going to talk a, a purely, you know, psychological, no, anti momentum thing. You're not saying that. You're saying there might be information in the team by team matchup that isn't in the power rankings. Correct. Um, and that's that's. Or think, you're really kind of arguing: should there be an interaction effect, where yeah, like you know, yeah. like that, you know, yeah. this matchup, that this particular game is not going to be kind of the additive sum of these two strengths. There's some kind of interaction where, like you know. So I've got a strong Tampa position. Bay matches up particularly well against Green Bay. I've got a strong position on that. I don't think there's a lot of that kind of interaction in football. I think we tend to see it, perceive it more than it exists. We've looked for it pretty hard, and it, you know we, we it, you're very limited in your de, in your degrees of freedom in football, and so you can't look at everything because you'll end up overfitting. But we have looked for those kinds of interactions and can't find them. So I think one second, Eric, I think in, in, in like, I think in basketball and even maybe in baseball, they exist more because of fewer, a fewer number of players and more, you know, fewer interactions. And so it stands to reason that if you have a real favorable one, it would make more difference in football. I think they wash out the, yeah. I go ahead. I do, I do think, I, I think they, you know, I'm inclined to say that in college football, the momentum psychological thing is more real that a team that faces somebody and beats them in the regular season has a harder time in the conference championship, just because it's somehow maybe the team that got beat has more motivation. It perhaps is not unrelated. Remember when Jonah Berger, our colleague did a study on teams that are down a point at halftime. I mean, being down a point shouldn't matter, but teams that are down a point at halftime actually do better in the second half. And he tells a motivational story. Perhaps there's a little something there, but I, even if that's true at college, I'm less inclined to believe it at professional. So I, I'm going to basically say there's no information in that first game. So I want to tell us, I want to tell a statistical story about why the mean might not change. So maybe I still, if someone put a, you know, puts a gun to my head and said, guess how much the Packers are going to win by or lose by plus three, that's what it is. But imagine I tell a story that the variance goes up. Now, what impact would that have? Well, that would raise the probability that the Buccaneers are going to win the game. So that's what I think I'm starting to believe. If they played a million times, I'm more than happy to say that the, the Packers are plus three. But I think the variance of the distribution, you have to believe, is raised given the 38 to 10 outcome. And therefore, if the mean is the same, but the variance goes up, it puts more probability in the tail for the Buccaneers. And that's the story I'm going with. I think the Buccaneers have a greater chance. If they had never played, I might still say Packers or if that had, let's do the following. It's not the Buccaneers that won 38 to 10. It was the Saints that had beaten them 38 to 10. Okay. But now that the Bucs have beaten them 38 to 10, I'm going to raise my variance and I'm going to give a higher probability that the Bucs win the game. And I don't have to change the mean odds to do it. Mm-hmm. 
I'm kind of with you on that on that score. I, 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 yeah. this is. I mean, I, I mean, that's a that's a two standard deviation victory. It's a big, it's a big, big win. Um, that does suggest that the standard deviation is higher, and maybe that's right. What is the what are the current uh, money line odds? Give you. A, and I'll just sort of, while maybe that's being looked up, I'll just point out that one big difference between that game week six victory is that was in Tampa Bay, right? It was in Tampa Bay. And this one's going to be in Green Bay <laughs> in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. Although Tom you know, Brady's uh, played a few games. No, 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 no. And I mean, like, if I, I think if it was Drew Brees somehow who plays half his games in a dome and, like, you know, the other half in the south or whatever – I, I would be more – I would th- say there's a greater weather kind of like differential between the two teams. Tom Brady is used to playing in New England, though he's even been interviewed. He does say that his, his blood has gotten yeah. thin even since – Yeah, so it's – by the way, just, just so you know, I know Matt put it up there. It slides, slides – the odds are a little different depending on what site you go to. On ESPN site, it has the Bucks at plus 155. Well, I would suggest that's a pretty good bet then for you. I hope you're making it. Uh, could be. We will see. <laughs> I'll tell you what I, I tell you what I'm happy about, though. Um, and this, you know, it could also we have to look back and see maybe where their players injured or anything else there. I know a big player for the Buccaneers potentially is coming back this week as their big defensive tackle, Vitavea, who is having an all pro season. He broke his ankle in week five. They just took him off the IR. So he has the potential to come back. Um, and so. Um, I'm excited yeah. about that possibility. But let me just say, and I know actually they did a great analytics look at this on I forget which ESPN show the other day. You could make an easy argument that this is Aaron Rodgers' best year ever. And so, I mean, when I say best, I mean better than the MB, other MVP years he's had. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's true, um, it's just this is a tough, tough game for the Buccaneers. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, and Aaron Rodgers looks fantastic. And I don't think that matchup, I mean, the secondary is kind of not. Not the strength the of the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers. So I, I would certainly worry on that side. How do I mean, you feel- I, I doubt any Packers fans are all that confident given who they're playing against. You know, <laughs> there is that. But like, how, why would you, you ever be confident about that? What, what do y'all think about the home field? We've noticed the home field advantage has mattered less over time. We've noticed that it's mattered less this year than in past years because of presumably fewer people in the stands or no people. Um, But where we've seen edges in the past, home field advantages in the past, they, they, they have seemed to be stronger late in the year and strongest um, latitudinally. And so cold, cold weather late in the year, is a place where you might expect to see it. I just want to point out, by the way, historically in the NFL, how much is riding on this game. And let me just say why for a second. If the Buccaneers win the game, Tom Brady and the Bucs become the first team to play the Super Bowl in their own home stadium. That's number one. Number two, um, this would kind of, I don't want to say end the dispute, but you can't say it's Bill Belichick. I mean, if Brady wins this game with this Buccaneer team that was seven and nine last year, now maybe that question's been answered in some people's minds already. But all I'm commenting on is third. Let's talk about it from the Aaron Rodgers point of view. People always talk about people who've underperformed in their career. This, if he loses this game, Aaron Rodgers will be one and four in the NFC Championship games. Now he's never had one at home. Well, this one's at home. If he loses this game. He'll start the weight of not performing well in the big games, especially a home favorite in the NFC championship game. I have another quarterback that was, I think, one and four in the NFC championship games and is vilified in the city of Philadelphia 
for years and years and years, and his name's Donovan McNabb. Yeah. Now, Donovan McNabb didn't win the big game because he lost to the Patriots, but this game has a huge historic proportion, much more for the legacy of Aaron Rodgers than it does oh, for yeah. the no, legacy of Tom Brady. I mean, I think Tom, Tom Brady. Brady's legacy is, is fairly safe on this one. I, I mean, I do I, – I, um, I mean, I, I guess I kind of I, – I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. I think um, – Aaron Rodgers' legacy as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time would probably survive this particular loss. But, I mean, it's true. I mean, they are going in with basically everything kind of trending in, in, in their direction other than the fact that they're playing against Tom Brady. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with the legacy also, aspect Let me just quickly build a statistical question. If Brady loses this game, though, he's I understand he's the greatest of all time. I have no problem saying that. But he will be 7-5 and five in championship games and 6-3 and three in the Super Bowl. So let's just also remember – there's a lot of stochasticity even for the GOAT. If he loses this game, he's seven and five in conference championship games. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, his, his winning percentage does go down as the team's he, opponents he faces get better and better. But yeah, even he's, he's not least, better he's than 50%. He's at least 50%. human in that respect. Even he's not better than 50% is what I'm but, saying. Eric, uh, this is, you know, this is interesting, I think, mostly in how the world reacts to these things because we know they overreact to these small samples. And it's a, it's a real shame that someone would be vilified for being one in three or one in four in a championship game. When it, I mean, that's such a small sample. And, and it's, you know, it's a, the thing that they ought to be rewarded for is how many times they're getting to this exactly. thing. So the fact that Brady would be there 12, 12 times in like, whatever. Wait, no, he's been to, this 17, is his 14th championship game and he's been to nine Super Bowls. So he, he must, Oh, maybe he's nine. The record four. must be wrong on he's that. He's nine and four then. So he would be nine okay. and five versus 10 and four. Well, both of those are really impressive. How about that? You're right. This is definitely, we know how many Super Bowls he's been to. Let's talk about the AFC. So both games are really interesting. I haven't had many experiences where I felt the bigger turn happen in a single play as I did with the Baltimore Buffalo. Not Yeah, that that 101 yard interception, you mean? Yeah, the 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 101 yard pick six when the Ravens were on knocking on the door, as they say, to tie the game. And instead they go down two touchdowns and, and they just can't play. Bigger well than Cleveland's game. fumble out of the end zone, but let's keep going on your Buffalo. Let's I mean, I, I do, I do think, I do think that that ball, I mean, even more than the kind of the Jared cook fumble in the new Orleans Tampa Bay game. I do think that that completely reversed the momentum yeah. of the Baltimore mm-hmm. uh, Buffalo game, just because, you know, they were basically, you know, could lean over to get a touchdown. And then instead it's a pick six the other way. It's like, you know, a 12 That's or 14 right. point play basically. And it was a little bit like the New Orleans-Tampa game in that through that point, it was more or less tied, but Baltimore, Baltimore had, had given up. They'd, been, they'd made so many mistakes that they would only, that they'd be tied at halftime was shocking. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of liked their look, and they changed things coming out of the halftime. You'd been looking for that short pass. They hadn't been using it. They finally used it all the way down the field, and it all changed in that yeah. one what do you guys make? I mean, Eric had this question of whether the Ravens need to totally rebuild. I mean, I, I can't help but feel that's an overreaction. This was Lamar's third year, second full year starting. Um, he got a playoff win as the quarterback of this team. They overcame a lot of COVID, but he still has this question of whether against the toughest competition at the end of the year, against the defense's answer to whatever you've been trying to do, do they have answers? And can Lamar lead those answers? So what is y'all's take on the, we've been kind of, you know, glorifying the Ravens for a couple of years now. What's your take on where they stand now? I mean, I do think, I mean, they're always going to have a good defense. That team just always has an amazing defense, 
But I, I think the real question, I mean, whether Lamar, the, the Ravens can kind of make it like to the, you know, the championship game next year or, or beyond, I think just hinges on is, is Lamar Jackson going to continue to kind of improve and evolve as a passer specifically such that he's not going to become this like one dimensional kind of quarterback, you know, I mean, he's, he's an amazing, I mean, he's the best running quarterback I think I've ever personally watched. Yeah. And <laughs> But I mean, he does need to kind of basically have that element of uncertainty to him and maintain so it. So I, I, I don't, I agree with that. And it's, and, 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 you know, the, the Bill's strategy clearly made that plain. What though, what accountability does the rest of the organization have? Because you said they always had this great defense. Well, are they, are they allocating their resources? Right? No, so, no. And I mean, they, so in other words, we're putting too much on Lamar's feet here because he's he still has to have receivers who get open and catch the ball. He's got to have a line that protects him, that kind of thing. So have they, this is a question for any team, but the world seems to have changed. Offense seems to have been more and more important. Yeah. Nick Saban is famous for a couple of years saying Nick Saban of all people, defensive coach, defensive genius, long time SEC football. And he's like, you know, world's changed. We're going to start like playing a different brand of offensive football. Cause that's what matters to what extent, does any team out there now need to be allocating the resources really towards offensive, even offensive skill talent, because that's where the real separation has in which, in which case this, this storied Ravens defense just doesn't matter as much anymore. Is I that think, true? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, no, it, I, I, I think it doesn't matter as much. And I think, by the way, I think coaching is part of it. In other words, the Ravens, I, I don't see uh, Lamar Jackson improving dramatically as a pure passer, given how long he's already been in the league. I'm not saying, but by the way, I'm not saying he can't. Jared, finish- Josh Allen is kind of a counterexample to that point. But yes, I, 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 I mostly agree I, with but you. But I don't think, by the way, I don't mean that the Ravens can't win the Super Bowl. There, if, if, if Lamar Jackson were to win a Super Bowl, there'd be a lot of quarterbacks a lot worse than him that won a Super Bowl. So let me just yeah. say that. As a matter of fact, I'll, yeah. one of my Buccaneers, right? Brad Johnson was, I mean, come on. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's lots of people that are, I forget who that Redskin guy was that won the Super Bowl, you know, all well, on Campbell. You, you, don't have Campbell. To, you don't have to leave the building. I mean, Trent Dilfer won him for the Ravens. Yeah, Trent Dilfer, Trent Dilfer. So all I'm, again, all I'm, and you could argue the, uh, I, I don't even why I can't, Nick Foles. So again, I mean, the, the Nick Foles is not, a, is better, not better than Lamar Jackson. All I'm commenting on is, it's now Harbaugh's job to build a team. If that's your franchise quarterback for the next 10 years, you must build the right assets around him to, in some sense, just the same way that Sean um, Payton, knowing he knew the last, look, you ask Sean Payton, hook him up to a lie detector and ask him if he knew Breeze's arm was shot the last two seasons. And he would have <laughs> said yes. But what he did is he built the team around it and it wasn't quite good enough against the best teams. So that's what, Harbaugh needs to do for the Ravens he needs to build it around the strengths of it and recognize as you said Cade that they can have the best unless it's the 85 Bears defense right. or maybe the the I forget the Broncos in whatever year Peyton Manning won one 16 15 yeah. whatever it was they're not winning the Super Bowl with just a very good defense it's not that good yeah and I mean I, I have to I mean I, I I think Baltimore's had some successes at like drafting at wide receiver and stuff like that you know like Marquise Brown looks like you know he's a you know, Contributor a, for sure. a, cap- a capable wide receiver, for example. And this is, I mean, I, I want to just echo kind of what Eric was saying is that, you know, I think the reason, one of the main reasons that t- uh, Tom Brady's playing in Tampa Bay instead of still playing in new England is that, you know, Belichick for all his strengths, like, you know, really was not able to kind of collect the offensive talent around Brady over the last few years 
that would make him, you know, effective quarterback. You feel like he was philosophically not inclined to. It's almost like we, we can ride Brady because he's going to carry the offense and we can put money elsewhere. Before. Yeah, and I mean, like, Bill Belichick has hit so many times on, like, late draft picks and all this stuff. Maybe there's some hubris there that he can kind of do whatever he wants. So, but, I mean, certainly they so, their last few wide receiver choices have been in New England. I want to say, even as a Buccaneers loss. fan, I'm as excited about that Bills-Chiefs game as I am about yeah. the Bucks packers It's a fantastic yeah. game. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun matchup. They're the same line. Both games have the same line. Um, we didn't talk much about the Bills there, but of course, uh, Josh Allen and one the, the 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 team and the support are are, the, are a fun part of the story. Um, Josh Allen it continues to be an amazing story. Casey got by the Browns much closer than many would have expected. Of course, the concussion contributed to that. We don't know yet whether Mahomes is going unless there's been news today. No, no, no I mean no, I mean. No bad news, but no like definitive good news either. Right. It's so, interesting from the betting side because apparently they won't even know for sure if he's playing till Sunday. Right. Because he has to go through the five steps of the concussion protocol. And at any point, if he shows any signs whatsoever, he goes back to step one and therefore is not playing. Yeah. 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 So we, we have to accommodate that on the Massey Peabody side. And so we make it about a five-point swing, a little bit more than a five-point swing. But this is really imperfect stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get big swings on these quarterbacks. Um, but that would take them from being you know, a three-point favorite to being more like a three-point underdog. And uh, they got home field, but that'd be a lot to overcome. And I would think it'd be tough psychologically to lose Mahomes at that key moment. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Chad Henney certainly did the job filling in. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but I, I, over an entire game against a better team, I don't, I, I, I think it's Mahomes or so Bust. So let me go back the, to the discussion geez. we had before and get to the question about who's more likely to upset who. I think we go back and say, given the means are the same, they both have the same lines. I think you'd have to put the greater uncertainty right now on the Chiefs-Bills game because of the health of Patrick Mahomes. Yep. And if, if someone told me I had to bet one of the two, the Bucks or the Bills, at plus three, I would take the Bills at plus yep. three right now over the Bucks at plus three because of the increased uncertainty there. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just uncertainty about whether or not he's allowed to play, which there is, but it's also, I mean, we don't know. I mean, like, if he's allowed to play but is not his usual kind of effectiveness, you know, uh, like, I mean, you know, they were already talking, he may have some foot injury in addition to the concussion that he's uh, working through right now. I mean, if he's kind of, um, I mean, I think Mahomes, even at like 70% effectiveness, this is an amazing quarterback, but I mean, that's worth, you know, that does increase the uncertainty. But also, and also Shane, I think also, I don't know how much weight systems like Massey, Peabody or FBI put into this. The Bills, ha- the, the Chiefs haven't covered the spread, I think, in nine straight games. Which they've, is incredible. They've won by less than seven points, like the last eight or nine games. And so you could say, well, they, they've been, you know, they know how to win this and that. You can't tell me after watching that Cleveland game, even before Mahomes got hurt, no. you can't tell me they were much, much better than Cleveland. You absolutely, no way. I couldn't agree more. I think this has been the story of the second half of the season, as far as I'm concerned, that the Chiefs are underperforming consistently, and that is not a good sign. In fact, it's a pretty strong bad sign. And so I, I definitely have them to not make it through the next two games, even without the Mahomes injury. And the Mahomes injury, it just I have such a sick feeling about it because the worst thing about these concussions is getting a second hit to the head in, in, in right on the heels of the first. Yeah. Right. What That's makes you think you're really, going to make it through the whole game? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not even talking about playing. I'm talking about the, I mean, you know, I'm usually the old school bury my head in the sand. I'm not going to pay attention to the injuries to the players kind of fan. 
for better or worse. <laughs> but but in this case, I'm like, I don't really want Mahomes to play because if he takes a shot to the head, we're talking about real trouble. And I mean, guys have stepped out of football after getting concussions two in a row like that. So the odds are low, but the possible consequences are high. And so it just it just puts the whole thing in a bad place. It's, it's you'd hate to see the Chiefs not finish the season with their quarterback, but I would frankly hate to see Mahomes in there risking a second concussion right on the heels of the first, which is where the real damage happened. Yeah. Either way, the good news about these games is you could make arguments for both all four of these teams right now, and I'm not sure. Well, yeah, like, three, three of them. <laughs> what you can't make an argument for the Bucks. You didn't even make an argument for one guy. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I don't know. The, the don't bet against him. I think, how about the Volan? I think I'll make you the one argument for the Bucks. Would you trade any of the other teams' receiving cores for them? I would take the Bucks' Good. receiving core over any other. Now, I think the Bucks have the worst defense of the four teams left, but yeah. I think they have the best receiving core. And so, you know, maybe, maybe the GOAT throws five touchdowns and the Bucks score 45. Anything could happen. Anything could happen for sure. Um, you know, the, the, I have a, a private wish that we would see Casey Green Bay because that's that's Super Bowl number one. And here we, 55 years later, however much longer it is later, we would finally get a replication. Wait, of Wait, given the fact Green that you lived in Buffalo and we have our mutual friend who will throw oh, no. at some point the biggest party in the history of mankind if Buffalo goes and wins the Super Bowl, you're no. not rooting for Buffalo to win the you Super know, Bowl? It's a pretty, you know, the thing to do, Eric, I mean, if they get there, the thing to do is to go to Buffalo. I mean. High risk, high high risk venture if Tom Brady's there waiting for him. (laughs) I'm not worried I mean, like, you know, this is why I want this Tampa Bay Buffalo matchup, because from the Buffalo perspective, it's got to be, I mean, you're, you're either going to win and basically like, you know, kind of like have an exorcism of the last 20 years of pain and like even before that all the super bowl kind of losses or it's going to be your fifth out of five attempt losses Mm -hmm. to the guy that's beaten you like 30 times in the last 20 years it could be awful yeah this is this is true this is true i'm not really worried about i think it's a better story than a reality but eric Mm -hmm. to your point it's it's not my driving wish i'm not hoping for casey green bay to actually happen it's not my most important wish but it'd be a fun little thing if it did no i'd like to see buffalo i'd like to see buffalo and green bay and I would like to see Buffalo do the whole thing. I mean, I, that's just a community yeah. that I pull for after having lived there for a couple of years. And now they have gotten a reputation for being one of the more analytics forward, one of the most advanced thinking organizations. And they play a very exciting brand of football. So there's just a lot of reasons to pull for that team. And I'm married into a Packers family. So I'm sorry, Eric. I've got to be pulling for the home team on the NFC side. Yeah, all I'm commenting is the only game of the, of the four that we're talking about that seemed somewhat lopsided to me was the Packers game. The Bucks game we just talked about, oh, it's a 10-point win. Yeah, it was 20-13 to 13, the wrong direction. Um, I think Buffalo-Baltimore, if that 101-yard pass isn't the other way, yep. you know, we've got a potentially different outcome. And Cleveland gave uh, Kansas City everything they can handle. Yeah. All right, before we go, just to wrap this thing up, everyone take make the two picks against the spread. Three points against the spread. Forget your brackets. Right now, Eric's crushing us on the brackets. We know that. In fact, I'm not entirely sure I can catch him, but I'm the only one with the Green Bay, so I, I might get there yet. But forget the brackets. Pick the two games against the spread. Who do you got? Eric. I will take Tampa Bay, and I will take Kansas City. All right. I'm not changing my mind. Tampa Bay, Buffalo. You're going to ride Tampa Bay all the way down. You're such a Brady homer. Adi. Adi <laughs> Green Bay, KC. It hasn't exactly served me wrong. Green Bay, KC? Yeah. And by the way, right. just to remind everyone, that's what my bracket has, but go ahead. 
I'm going Green Bay Buffalo. So we all have different matchups. All right. Fantastic. That's eight picks, fellas. We'll see how we do as a group um, coming this time next week. That is the third quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have.